You're listening to the Finchwood Discipleship Podcast. My name is Matthew, and as your host, my mission is to help you discover who God is and what it means to live as a citizen of His kingdom. Greetings, Finchwood. As you know by now, this season is about the basics of Christianity. And while the first half was about ideals and principles that we live our lives by as Christians, the second half has been about the Bible, which is the source for those ideals and principles. Having reviewed the origins of the Bible, its authority, the story it tells, and the tools and methods we use to interpret it, this week we're going to look at what it says, not from a narrative perspective, but a theological one. In other words, this episode is about the beliefs that we Christians hold concerning God, the universe, and ourselves, based on what this book says. Before I really get into that, though, I'd like to answer a concern that some listeners might have in the back of their minds about this topic. Whether you like it or not, you already have your own theology. Everyone has theology because everyone has thoughts and beliefs about God. The question is whether those beliefs line up with the Christianity of the Bible, or if you've cherry-picked your way through life making up a hodgepodge of whatever beliefs you've either heard or formed on your own. Now you have every right to do that and to form your own opinions based on whatever criteria you like, but at the end of the day, aren't you at least the slightest bit curious about why you believe what you believe? And wouldn't you rather base your beliefs on something bigger than yourself? I know I would, and that really is the point here. In recent decades, the word theology has become a dirty word in some corners of the Christian community for multiple reasons. First of all, I recognize that a lot of very mean-spirited people like to call themselves theologians and then start flame wars on the internet where they defend some obscure point of doctrine that seems totally crucial to them, but unimportant to everyone else. I know about that because I used to be one of those people. Before there was Twitter or Facebook or even MySpace, if you can remember that far back, I was the guy in internet chat rooms and message boards calling people morons because their understanding of God didn't line up with my particular preferred doctrine. I was the worst, and for a while I even burned myself out on all the conflict and ugliness that so-called theology can sometimes inspire. If hearing that word brings you back to conversations with people like me, I'd like to apologize. I'm sorry. You shouldn't have had to experience that. I'd also like to promise you that this isn't going to be that kind of conversation. One of the ground rules for Finchwood that I laid out in the pilot episode was to be kind, and I intend to abide by that in this episode as well. A second misconception about theology that I sometimes encounter in people is that it runs contrary to true worship. The idea here is that God supposedly isn't interested in our minds that he wants us to surrender our brains when we decide to follow him. Instead, once again supposedly, he just wants us to experience him on a purely emotional level. That or some people might emphasize our actions as the only arena of life in which our relationship with God can truly be made real. Certain congregations and subcultures within Christianity take this pretty far, to the point of intentionally cultivating ignorance and even avoiding biblical, solidly Christian forms of education. I can't tell you how many times I've heard a preacher snarkily say that he had never been to cemetery, oh, oh sorry, what I meant to say was seminary, 
as if a lack of training has ever made anyone better at their job. Now I'm guessing because you've made it all the way to the 16th episode of a podcast dedicated to learning more about God, that you're not in that camp. And I'm seriously grateful for you. Thank you for being here. Still, I've definitely met Christians who had been exposed to that sort of attitude and became subconsciously ashamed of their legitimate desire to learn about God. If that's you, I want to tell you today that it's okay to want to know more about God. In fact, it's more than okay. It's great. If you'll recall the second episode of this season when we talked about our purpose as Christians, we saw that God commands us, not suggests or allows, but commands us to love Him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But how can you love God with your mind if you don't let Him into it? God wants you to study Him. He's the God who gave us the whole Bible as a study tool to know Him better, and more than that, He's the God of order and logic and evidence, as well as faith. He's not against any field of study, and His people shouldn't be either. Yet another image that sometimes comes to people's minds when they think about theology is of debating about things that don't really matter. Theology can sometimes seem like a waste of time, so why should we pursue it? This objection does at least bear a nugget of truth in that it's possible to get lost in the weeds of theology and focus on things that aren't going to be helpful. The way the saying goes, some theologians will gladly debate about how many angels could dance on the point of a needle even while their cities burn to the ground around them. By the way, if that seems like a weird thing to say, as far as I can tell, that phrase comes from the 13th century when I guess large urban fires were more of a common occurrence. Anyway, the principle here is very similar to the one I talked about in the Christian Lifestyle episode, I think six weeks ago. All things are permissible, but not all things are beneficial. If you want to have a conversation about angels forming conga lines on your sewing equipment, be my guest. But I seriously doubt that topic is going to help anyone genuinely become more like Jesus. Theology for the sake of theology can be a fun intellectual exercise, and there are people like me who genuinely enjoy it in and of itself. But more broadly, the purpose of theology is to know God better and to be better Christians as a result. The more and more I learn about God, the more I find myself in awe of His majesty and greatness. My theology is the fuel for my worship because my heart and my soul take what my mind knows and they use it for the glory of God. And to the all-that-matters-is-your-actions crowd, I just need to ask, how do you know what to do and what not to do? The answer to that question is also theology, properly getting to know God and learning what he would do in a situation so that you can go and do likewise. Those are the real pursuits of good, practical, and biblical theology. So, how do we go about exploring what we believe about God? Where do we start? I could easily start listing statements of belief in no particular order, but I think in this conversation we would benefit from some kind of outline or a logical progression that would take us from one area of thought to the next, systematically. As it turns out, there is such an outline that's often used for these discussions, and I'm going to use it today. Not because it's necessarily traditional or superior, but simply because it's useful. That order is found in the creeds, which I mentioned three weeks ago in the episode about different sources of truth. 
At that time, I talked about how the early church composed these statements, summaries, of what we do or don't believe, which are known as the creeds. If you belong to a local church and it has a website, there's a good chance that a very similar document exists there under the heading Statement of Faith or What We Believe, and it's even likely that your church's position is patterned after or even directly quoted from these very ancient documents. Let's begin by looking at how and why the creeds were written. The earliest such document to survive into the present day is what's known as the Old Roman Creed, which was used as the basis for the more well-known Apostles' Creed. The Roman text dates back to the 2nd century at the latest. Back then, this was used as a teaching tool for new converts, and it also played a part in their baptism ceremonies. It was part of the process of joining the Christian movement. The creed itself was a simple list of statements. I believe in this God, that these things are true about him, that he did A, B, and C, and that he will do X, Y, and Z. These were the bare minimum, the basics, if you will, of what it meant to be a Christian. Over the next few generations, we started to dig a little deeper into just how all this Christianity stuff works, especially the gospel, the message of how salvation is worked out between us and God. And we started to notice that some of the things being taught on the outskirts of the church negated that message if you were to follow them out to their logical conclusions. One very prominent example was the controversy over whether Jesus is God or just an ordinary human or somehow both. If Jesus isn't God, then does he have the power to really save us from anything? On the other hand, if he was never human, then how do his death and resurrection apply at all to us? The only way the gospel makes sense is if he's both God and man. And so the church got together and clarified some of those issues by writing a slightly longer creed. Once again, I'd like to point out that these weren't just academic discussions. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that the fate of Christianity was at stake because it matters a great deal whether Jesus is God or not. Now, at those early councils, more or less the entire Christian church signed off on the results. But after that point, the theology of the worldwide church split in a million different directions, and that's because we started to argue about things that are less essential. Whether or not Jesus is God is a big deal. Whether or not you should baptize people as infants or as adults is far less crucial, though it still can be important. Did Jesus rise from the dead? That's a big deal. Is it okay to play drums in church? Not a big deal. I think you get the picture. Pretty early on, somebody coined this lovely phrase that displays what I believe to be the right attitude about theological disputes. That we should display unity in the essentials, freedom in the non-essentials, and love in all things. What we mean by having unity in the essentials is that there's a short list of non-negotiable doctrines that define who is and isn't a Christian. Since those creeds were written during the early church period, we've been in pretty solid agreement about both our positions on those topics as well as what the essential topics are to begin with. Everything else, what we would call non-essentials, might still be important. Whether or not to have drums, for example, isn't something that all Christians everywhere need to agree on. But for entirely practical reasons, it's something that your individual congregation is going to have to come to some kind of mutual understanding about. And that's where the third criterion for good theology comes in, to display love in all things. 
It's okay to find out that we have disagreements with other people about the non-essential stuff, even when it's something that's very important. But whichever category of belief we're talking about, we ought to treat each other like brothers and sisters with mutual respect and admiration along the way. Fundamentally, I can treat you with dignity whether you agree or disagree on the essentials, whether or not you're even a Christian. But if we do agree on these core tenets of our theology, I can recognize you as a family member and as someone who serves the same God that I do, even if we never come to any sort of agreement on infant or believer's baptism, for instance. So now that we've got that rather long setup out of the way, let's talk about the essentials, which pretty much follow the creeds. What's nice here is that most of this material has already been covered in this podcast, just not all in one place. So I'm going to breeze through most of the major points here, though there are a few that I'm going to explain along the way. Starting with the old Roman creed, which I mentioned earlier, we believe in God the Father Almighty and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was born from the Holy Spirit through the Virgin Mary, who was crucified under Pontius Pilate and buried, who rose again from the dead on the third day, who ascended to heaven, and who is now sitting at the right hand of the Father. And we believe that from there he will come to judge the living and the dead. We also believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Church, the remission of sins the resurrection of the dead, and everlasting life. Now that's it. That's the old Roman creed. Something you may notice there is that most of the creed talks about who Jesus is. And that's because most of the controversies in the early church surrounded him and his identity. In contrast, believing in the Holy Spirit, the church, and those three distinct aspects of the gospel, the forgiveness of sin, the reversal of death, and our continued future existence, those were less disputed among Christians in the first few centuries, but they were still distinguishing characteristics that separated us from everyone else in the Roman world. After a while, we added language saying that God is the creator of everything that exists, and that's pretty much the content of what we call the Apostles' Creed. Sometime after that, we also added this point that Jesus is not only Lord and Savior, but that he is also God eternally existing with the Father before creation. We also added the same ideas about God the Holy Spirit, and a few other clarifying details such as that the church is unified and descended from Jesus' original followers. And that's the sum total of what's called the Nicene-Constantinopolitan Creed, which most people fortunately just call the Nicene Creed for short. Last but not least, we have what's called the Chalcedonian Definition which is less of a full-blown creed and more of a clarifying statement that Jesus is both fully God and fully human. And the reason that's important is because if he's only partially God or partially human, then we're partially saved under the gospel. Now, I don't expect you as the listeners to memorize all of those creeds word for word. I don't even really expect you to memorize their names, which, by the way, are mostly just the names of suburbs of what is now Istanbul in Turkey. Fun fact. But instead, what's important here is the main points of belief, because in that short list, we've pretty much covered the things that all Christians believe. Now, this is a mostly comprehensive list of the essentials, but for the record, I may have missed one or two points. What you may be surprised by is what's on the other list, the things that only some Christians believe. This category not only covers the true non-essentials, things that come down to personal or cultural preference, 
but also a number of variations in how we interpret and understand the items that are essentials. One well-known example that you may have heard of is the disagreement about how we come to participate in and receive the salvation and forgiveness that Jesus obtained for us on the cross. Did we choose to accept salvation on our own? Or were we chosen by God to be the ones who would choose him to the exclusion of everyone else? This controversy goes by many names like Calvinism versus Arminianism, or predestination versus free will, or in ancient times they called this monkey grace versus cat grace, because a mother cat carries her kittens around whether they like it or not. But baby monkeys have to hold on to their mother, and if they fall off, that's on them. All of us agree that salvation is possible, and we all agree that God had to do something first. But our own role in that process is up to interpretation. For most of these big controversies, the creeds as well as the Bible define what the outermost acceptable borders of Christian faith and understanding are. And as long as you find yourself within those boundaries, you're all set. Honestly, my answer to most of these controversies is that both sides are partially true. I don't know if I can understand it completely or even explain it in a coherent way, but to some degree God did choose us, and also to some degree we had to choose him of our own free will. It's a mystery and a bit of a contradiction, but that doesn't mean it's untrue. What would be untrue is if we went around saying that we had earned salvation based on our good deeds. That would be far outside of the realm of what Christians believe because it denies that Jesus had to die in the first place. Another great example here is that some Christians focus more on the fact that God is singular, one being, while others emphasize the relational qualities within God, so much so that there are essentially three of them, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So, are we monotheists or tritheists? I think to some degree we can be both because we serve a God who is one and who is made up of three persons. Beyond those variations on the essentials, of course, there are millions of smaller questions that are relatively immaterial where the nature of God or the gospel message are concerned, and they come down to matters of opinion or preference. For instance, how should a local church be organized? Do you simply have a pastor who makes all the decisions? Or should there be a board of ruling elders who have the ultimate authority? Or maybe all decisions should just be put up to a vote for all the church's members to determine. The Bible doesn't tell us one way or another how to answer that question. So it looks like the right answer for your community is whatever works best. Other non-essentials are things like what you specifically expect to happen at the end of history, exactly what role the Holy Spirit should have in the life of the church, whether or not to celebrate various holidays, whether Adam had a belly button, and so forth. Now, some of those questions have a practical impact on how we conduct ourselves as Christians, and some don't. Likewise, several of them do touch on matters that are addressed in the Bible, but with some degree of wiggle room in how to interpret the text, while others are nowhere mentioned in the Bible at all, and any answer we could give would be pure speculation. Either way, those questions are well outside the realm of the basics, which is what this season has been about. Speaking of the season, at this point, we've come to the end of what I had planned when I first laid out what we would talk about for the past 13 episodes. I'm going to make one more next week to wrap things up and to answer any questions I've received, and then we'll be moving on to season two. Please join me for that finale episode, and meanwhile, have a great week. And thank you for listening. 
You've been listening to the Finchwood Discipleship Podcast, conversations for people who want to be more like Jesus. If you enjoyed this episode, then please subscribe now and consider sharing it with your friends. For more information about this episode's topic or to continue the discussion, please consult the show notes. See you next time.